Losing is not a happy thing when the stakes are high. Not when you lose your lover on a simple goodbye. It's over, it's over, it's over. I can't look back, won't look back. My heart. As it's done. Hello and welcome to episode 1289 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Jeff, that's a wrap. Season over. Uh, I, I know it's sad that baseball is done because it is more fun to have things happening. We now get to talk about how many hundreds of millions of dollars Bryce Harper is going to make and Manny Machado might have cost himself by being kind of a jerk sometimes, but Mm -hmm. the surge of just like relief and elation that comes the morning after the last game is like nothing else that I experience in a professional setting during the year. It's just (laughs) nice to be able to like plan sleep again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like there's just this games all the time and especially this weekend was so draining i mean this series yeah. granted this series should have gone seven the red sox astros series, every series the red sox had should have gone seven because the red sox yankees astros and dodgers are the, the the four best teams in baseball and it feels like we were missing something by not having those series go the distance but on the other hand the way that the red sox yankee series ended was heart stopping mm-hmm. the red sox and astros well, I don't really know what to say about that one. That was just kind of a that was a bummer of a series. But then the Red Sox mm-hmm. and Dodgers, they played five games, but they really played six. And the they played four games in three days effectively over the weekend. Lots to remember, even after kind of a, a boring and quiet game five. So maybe we got mm-hmm. enough, but I don't know. Uh, maybe later on I'll I'll feel a little bad that the Red Sox were were too dominant. Uh-huh. Yeah, very relatable celebrating the end of baseball and the absence of baseball <laughs> for the next <laughs> five months. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners are all identifying very strongly. No, I know what you mean because this is a, a grueling month if you cover baseball. And uh, in that sense, it's nice to have a little bit of a breather, but then the breather goes on so long that you have nothing to talk about and you're still obligated to talk about something and then that becomes its own problem at a certain point but i enjoy the off-season episodes because we can get kind of weird not that we don't get weird during the regular episodes but we can just venture off the beaten path a bit but today we're gonna just do world series recap and as you said there have been three games since we last spoke although lengthwise it was four and we have a, a resolution. So, yeah, I, I don't think it was a classic World Series or a classic playoffs. We've been a little bit spoiled lately. We've had some real seven-game all-time series in just the last few years. I mean, 2011, 2014, 2016, 2017, they were all really great, great series. And so compared to those, this really did kind of pale. And, you know, the whole playoffs, I think— I looked at various metrics on Dan Hirsch's site, the Baseball Gauge, just to bring some stats into my subjective feelings about these playoffs and this World Series, and it all kind of matched up with what I thought, whether you go by the average championship leverage index or the total change in championship win probability added, all these fancy ways to try to quantify the excitement that we felt or didn't feel, and Even looking at, like, you know, Steve Pierce was the MVP of the series, and he led both teams in championship win probability added, so probably good choice for the MVP, Steve Pierce. But of the 114 World Series that have been played so far, Steve Pierce had the 82nd highest, I think, total for a best player in a World Series. So it wasn't like there was even a a player who just kind of went off and just had an incredible week. Like, Pierce was really good, but his goodness was concentrated in the last couple games. So it wasn't like a dominant, legendary World Series performance unless you're a Red Sox fan. And we've talked about how there's some Red Sox fatigue and some Boston sports fatigue after 11 titles now since 2002. So... The matchup wasn't particularly compelling just based on the team. So anyway, now that we've denigrated the series enough, I mean, (laughs) 
there was some excitement over the weekend. I don't know whether, I mean, Game 3 is a, a classic in that we will always remember Game 3, and it still feels like we're watching Game 3 on some level. <laughs> and so probably if there's one thing we'll remember about the 2018 World Series, it's that it was Game 3. It was the 7-hour and 20-minute game. I don't know if it was a great game because it was almost like just an endurance test. It was like if you made it through, then you felt like you were part of this club that actually lasted all that time. And we'll never forget that. But on the other hand, it's not a game you would ever want to rewatch. I don't think this is going to be on like ESPN Classic or something. You can't even fit that on a DVD. <laughs> how well, How and this is a serious question, how well do you remember the details of last year's Game 5 of the World Series? I guess not that well right now because off the top of my head, so many of the games in that series were wild that mm-hmm. I would have to remember the sequence of events. Like up until Game 7, which was an anticlimax, it, it looked like that might be the best World Series of all time going by some of those stats I cited. And then Game 7 was a letdown. But before that, it was amazing. So it's all kind of jumbled up in my mind. But I remember just how incredible that was at the time. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I wondered I don't know how much how many of the details I'll remember from this year's game three, although in fairness there are far fewer details to remember from this year's game yeah. three, but for the duration of it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe they finished three or four minutes short of the longest game ever played in one sitting. I just like yeah. review the home run or something. Just find a reason. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. it does feel I feel a little bad. What we should have done in hindsight is we should have just done podcasts after game three and then after game four and then after game <laughs> five because it feels so weird now to talk about those games after the fact, knowing the outcome and just because, you know, as soon as after game three and after game four, then if there's writing to be done, you write about the game. You write about how wild and crazy the games were and how it they're unprecedented. Whatever. Great comebacks, great drama, really long games. Less drama in game three, but really <laughs> long. But then as soon as the final out is recorded, anything you think about, anything you write about is just like, here is the series and playoffs and season in review. And it's less about the individual games that were played. And I feel bad that we didn't get a chance to just talk for an hour about the two most dramatic games and most interesting games Mm -hmm. of of the world series those games were crazy given just how sloppy game three was and then how every single Mm -hmm. thing dave roberts did in game four was i don't know went wrong i don't know if it was wrong but everything was was spoiled there's so many little details that not only do i recall them now a little less just because it's been a day or two but Mm -hmm. i don't know i feel bad that we didn't have dedicated episodes to those games they were really this was another anti-climax in in game five but Oh, man, at least the series gave us something. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that we did our discussion about second-guessing on Friday and we talked everyone (laughs) out of second-guessing managers so that none of that happened over the weekend. Everyone just accepted every move that was made. You solved it. Yeah, I, I think that was good timing on my part. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Where do you start with game three? I mean, it it just went on and on and on and on. And there were heroic performances, whether it was Nathan Nivaldi or, you know, there were goat performances, Kinsler. I think Kinsler, basically, it wasn't just like fans criticizing what Kinsler did in that game. It was also Alex Cora basically benching him after that, right? Because he had started, I think, like every game against a lefty starter going back, I don't know, since he was acquired or or quite a while. And then all of a sudden, after game three, he did not start against lefty starters. So I think maybe that was just, I don't know if that was the end of Ian Kinsler. Like, he's had a near Hall of Fame career, so I kind of hope he doesn't go out like that. But that was... That was bad, <laughs> whether it was the <laughs> the play at second that prolonged the game and ultimately let the Dodgers get back into it or his weird trip around the bases and getting thrown out at home by a, a Bellinger throw that was pretty far offline, even if it was powerful. That was not a great showing by him. I guess Ian, the closest I can come up with is that Ian Kinzer was essentially for the Red Sox where Brian Dozer was for the Dodgers. Now, mm-hmm. Dozer is not as close to the end of his career, but... 
I mean, Ian Kinsler was just, I don't know what his exact postseason batting line was, but he had seven hits, I can tell you that much, and he batted 34 times, so you do the math. That's a little better than 200, but no triples, no home runs. He, he had a one walk and 14 strikeouts in the playoffs. This is uh, someone who's been like a premium <laughs> contact hitter. It just looked yeah. like Ian Kinsler was toast. He played like toast. I don't know. Everyone's tired. But then to have game three prolonged because Ian Kinsler stumbled and threw a ball wild, Ian Kinsler is like maybe the best defensive second baseman of his yeah. era. Now, he's right. someone who had to learn to become that, but it was just a ridiculous kind of baseball game where like the go-ahead run in the 13th scored on a bad throw to first, and then the tying <laughs> run scored on a bad throw to first, and then there were five more innings <laughs> after yeah. that which is just an absurdity. It's amazing how much... I understand why Dave Roberts was put under the microscope after Game 4, because like literally every single button that he pressed just like exploded in his face. But <laughs> yeah. you have to remember that in Game 3, Dave Roberts kept going to the bullpen, and outside of Kelly Jansen blowing a save, which... We'll talk about that a little later. Everything was mm -hmm. fine. It's not really his fault. Scott Alexander, like there was a throwing error and that misplay happened at first base. No one to blame for that, but everybody else was fine. Even Ryan Madsen got an out without things ending horribly. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it was it was strange to have game three end and it felt like the biggest story was just how heroic Nathan Yovaldi was regarded, yeah. even though mm -hmm. they lost. Just like the, the Red Sox controlled the conversation in this series for all five games, even after the game that they lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another way in which this series, at least quantified as not very impressive, was that the Dodgers never had a better chance to win the series than they did in, I think it was the top of the third inning of game one when <laughs> Machado singled and, and tied it when Turner scored. And I think according to the baseball gauge, they had a 50.2% chance to win Ooh. the series at that point. That was as high as they ever got. And I think there were only seven of the 114 World Series before this that had not featured the losing team at least making more of a, an effort than that, getting a little closer to challenging the eventual winning team. So that's another thing. Just like once the Red Sox took the lead, it just felt like they weren't going to relinquish it until, I guess, game four, where for a while there, it, it felt very much like the Dodgers were about to even things up and then who knows where things would go from there. But I mean, game three, just because it went on so long, really had something to do with game four. I mean, game four was set up by game three, by the bullpens being depleted. That's why we got into this spot where both managers were wrestling with leaving their starters in just to get some length. And so that's what often happens in these the three portion of the 2-3-2 two, two in these seven-game series because that's when you start running out of gas and you've used relievers and you have to actually care about those things, which you don't if it's just off day after off day. It's interesting. One of the things we... So after game four ended and there was all the second guessing of Dave Roberts, nice job, Ben, uh, a lot of people... Uh, it was it was revealed that both Pedro Baez and Julio Arias were not available after having worked right. in game three. Now, Julio Arias, it makes some sense, he's coming off major surgery, etc., you don't want to work him on back-to-back -back days. But the fact that Pedro Baez didn't come in and Ryan Madsen did, etc., I think there a lot of people were confused why that happened. And then Robert said that Baez wasn't available. But I think something that maybe, maybe this has been written about and I just haven't read it yet. There's a lot to read. But it's interesting that Baez was deemed unavailable and that the Dodgers had some players who were deemed unavailable from time to time, whereas it seemed like everybody on the Red Sox was available all of the time. Like David Price <laughs> yeah. warmed up or Nathan Yovaldi just warmed up like every single game. It felt yeah. like, and I don't know, it's easy to see that or interpret that as some sort of testament to the Red Sox managing and their their spirit. Maybe they had more heart than the Dodgers did. And of course, I am disinclined to believe that, but it is something that mm -hmm. I would like to know more about because it did feel like the Red Sox collectively were just more inclined to lay it all on the line and, and just go just push it, like step on the gas all the time mm -hmm. just constantly go for the jugulars people kept saying over and over in a very grisly way to talk <laughs> about playoff baseball yeah but and it was yeah. also weird to get to the point where people were talking about the Red Sox might bring in Nathan Neovaldi out of the bullpen they're going for the jugular it's like what <laughs> are we even talking no. about anymore but anyway <laughs> it, it is interesting and it's 
I don't know. Maybe there's something there and, and maybe there's not. And maybe I'm just buying, buying in too much to the media narrative that's already been established. But the, the, mm-hmm. everybody on the Red Sox seemed to want to be pitching all of the time. Yeah, I know David Price said that he told Cora he was available for every single game, which, I mean, you know, I'm sure he meant it, but there's a certain amount of eyewash there, I guess, if you're just saying, put me in coach when you know he's not going to put you in because you're not going to use David Price in every single game. But yeah, it seemed like they were all willing to, and there were starters. I mean, the Dodgers had starters in their pen from the beginning of the playoffs or from late in the season when Wood went there and Maeda went there. So it's it's not necessarily unique to them, but the Red Sox were still using Porcello and Ivaldi and Sale as starters and Price and also using them in the bullpen at the same time, which is not like something the Red Sox pioneered, I don't think. There's a, a long history of starters being used out of the pen. This was more liberal usage of it than than we typically see. But again, that's something that the Astros kind of did last year, and mm-hmm. they were trendsetters in that respect. So I think, yeah, I don't think that Dave Roberts did anything horrendous in Game 4. I actually thought that Alex Cora made the worst move of the game in leaving Eduardo Rodriguez in as long as he did. And ultimately, no one cares or really remembers that because the Red Sox came back and won. But if they hadn't, I feel like that would have been criticized a lot. And I think even Cora admitted that, that Mm -hmm. he was kind of let off the hook by the Red Sox subsequent scoring. I mean, I think to leave Rodriguez in to start that inning, to face Turner, then to face Puig. There was this whole broadcast debate about whether facing Puig was by the book or by the numbers or (laughs) wasn't, because it's confusing because Puig has a reverse split. And not just this year, but his whole career, he has a reverse split. And I think it's also in the expected stats for the years that we have the expected stats. It's not just the superficial stuff. It's not just some weird Babbitt thing. On the other hand, it's a six-year career, and a couple of those years were not full years. Three of those years were not full years. So I still don't know whether that's something you should trust. Like, presumably you would expect that Puig has a smaller split than the typical hitter, but I don't know if you actually believe that he has a reverse split. And even this year, when he hit 209 against lefties, he still hit 19 of his 23 homers against righties. So he still has power. I I don't know. It's it's a confusing thing whether you blame him for that or not because you would just think like on the broadcast they were citing the single season splits and that doesn't mean much but it is a a career length thing for him i mean you know it almost doesn't matter cuz that that ball was just a a cookie or a meatball or whatever kind of snack food you want to call it it was right there and uh i guess it was what was it the third time through the order at that point i it don't must know have been. so yeah yeah so I think, yeah, Cora really got bailed out there. That, to me, was the clearest example of someone making a pitching move that shouldn't have been made, or in this case, the absence of a move. Yeah, right. And I looking, I've been watching baseball for a long time, and if uh, I don't know how, I'm sure it's several more times over the course of our uh, diminishing lives, so there will be conversations about momentum. And I don't know if there's a clear example in this series of the irrelevance of momentum than the fact that the Dodgers right. won game three and then the Osiel Puig hit that home run and everybody lost their mind. And then the Red Sox scored nine runs in three innings mm-hmm. and they won the game and then they won the series. They just took over. And there are, I guess, two points I wanted to make. One of them I already just partially made in that when Puig hit his home run, my gut feeling was, and there it is, the Dodgers will win the World Series. I thought that was just going to be the decisive turning point. I don't know why my brain still believes in turning points. There are no turning points, or at least when there are, they can be followed by several more turning points. (laughs) But the other thing that I'm really relieved about, as much as I would have liked the series to go longer and as, as much as that could have been facilitated by the Dodgers winning game four. Right before Yasiel Puig hit his home run, of course, Cody Bellinger came up with the bases loaded and one out, and he hit a ball to first base, and the throw went home, and then the throw went mm. back to first, and it got away, yeah. and Cody Bellinger was safe, and a run scored, and then Puig hit his home run, 4 nothing Dodgers. Cody Bellinger was out of the running lane, going to first base, 
wasn't called, could have been called. I, I was going through the rule book. I couldn't see any reason why it couldn't have been called runner's lane interference or whatever mm. the rule is called. As Cody Bellinger yeah. was to the left of the three-foot running lane as the throw was going to first. Now, maybe in the umpire's judgment, he didn't interfere with the throw because the throw was on the other side of his body, etc. I don't really know, and the call wasn't made. It's non-reviewable. I am just relieved that we don't have to dwell on that and that we didn't have to dwell on that for more than mm -hmm. a couple of innings because the Red Sox just stormed back because that would have been mm -hmm. real annoying. And that's a play where Bellinger has been called out this season for interference for being out of that line. Now, when I uh, when I looked at the precedent, he was a little more inside the line than he was on uh, on Saturday night. But nevertheless, Bellinger was out of the line, out of the lane, throw it to first. And, uh, and it all led to the big home run. So I'm just mm -hmm. really, really glad that that is behind us. And after this moment, I don't have to talk about it again. Yeah. And so the big decision that Roberts has been criticized by by everyone, including Donald Trump, of all people, is not leaving Hill in when Hill was, quote unquote, cruising and We've talked about this recently. I've, I've linked to the research. There's just no indication that anyone has found that cruising means much, that it's predictive at all. And so, I mean, I love Hill, and Hill is so much fun to watch. I, he's just, whether it's the dropping down and the multiple angles and the changing of speeds and the way, I just like watching his curveball. Like, he kind of, he gets his whole body into, like, placing it where he wants it to go. It's just, you know, and he's such an expressive guy and just a, a fun personality. And he, I think, wisely second-guessed Donald Trump's second-guessing. But I think I didn't have a problem with having him removed at that point for various reasons. I mean, A, it's just, you know, third time through the order effect. We know that's not really affected much, if at all, by how the pitcher has been doing. He isn't someone who typically goes deep into games. He was already at the typical pitch count where he gets removed from starts. And then there was the whole weird saga of what he told Dave Roberts and what Dave Roberts interpreted that Hill told him. I mean, it was kind of like a comic situation if the stakes weren't so high for the team. You kind of wish like they would just say what they mean and just be like, I'm tired or are you tired? I am feeling fatigued. So, so Hill told Roberts to keep an eye on him. And Roberts interpreted that as Hill saying he was feeling tired. Hill never actually said he was feeling tired. And then I guess when Roberts came out to meet with Hill, he wasn't intending to take the ball from him necessarily, but Hill had his back turned and he didn't want to show up Roberts. So he just handed the ball over because he thought Roberts was out there to take the ball from him. So it's this whole like weird etiquette kind of thing where no one wanted to say or do anything to like offend anyone else. And so they ended up making a move that evidently neither of them wanted the other one to make. So it's kind of this strange little story, but I don't know that it was the wrong move. And and I don't blame Roberts for interpreting Rich Hill's comment in that way. Like, watch me closely or carefully or whatever. Watch me in this inning. I mean, he's watching you in every inning. It's the World <laughs> Series and he's the manager and you're the starting pitcher. So if my starter said that to me, I would assume that he means like he's running out of gas and, you know, keep an eye on me because things might go south and have someone ready. That seems like the logical inference there. But, you know, I guess Roberts could have and should have clarified if that wasn't actually what Hill meant. Anyway, all that aside, it seems fine to take Rich Hill out in that spot. I agree with that, and I agree that going to Scott Alexander was the right move then because uh, Urias yeah, wasn't available guy. to come in. And, and Scott Alexander this year, I know that he had some problems with wildness and whatnot, but against lefties, he had a 172 batting average and a 212 slugging. He had 30 strikeouts and non-walks. He's a good left-handed pitcher against left-handed hitters, and Brock Holt, for as much as he's improved, is not a great left-handed hitter. That seemed like that was... A, the good matchup. You even if you disagree with taking out Rich Hill, you can at least figure. Well, when you're up four nothing and you have eight outs left, 
chances are Scott Alexander is not going to be worse than Rich Hill in that situation mm-hmm. against Brock Holt. Right. And then he walked him on four pitches, which is bad. Now, what confuses me a little bit, and now I'm too far removed from the moment to be able to remember if there are more details, but... Yeah, why he took him out after that. Yeah, because Christian Vasquez was up next, and he was going to be followed by, uh, well, Mitch Moreland pinch hit for Matt Barnes after that, and Moreland, of course, hit the home run. But I don't know why you take out Scott Alexander against Christian Vasquez, who is objectively bad. And so Mm -hmm. then you go to Ryan Manson, and... And the Red Sox go to the bench and bring in Jackie Bradley. Jackie Bradley is a lot better hitter than Christian yeah. Vasquez. And now, and that was the second time that it seemed like maybe Roberts just didn't anticipate the pinch hitting move that Cora was going to make. I mean, going back to the, the Devers and Baez and Eduardo Nunez game, not that you would expect Eduardo Nunez to hit a three-run homer, but that was another case where it just seemed like he was managing for the matchup that was you know right in front of him instead of anticipating what Cora would do yeah and even there even if you leave Ale- again we're just getting into second guessing here but <laughs> I feel like the the worst th- it seems like the worst thing that happened uh to Dave Roberts the worst thing that Dave Roberts did in game four was to take out Scott Alexander when it did now maybe maybe they saw something in the way that he walked Brock Holt on four pitches that was like oh he's going to walk everybody on four pitches until we take him out now that's very unlikely Alexander was not missing by very much against Holt whatever I get it but even Alexander against Christian Vasquez you don't have the platoon advantage there if you just leave him in then I don't know if the Red Sox still pinch hit, leave Vasquez in. I don't know what they could have done, but Alexander likely would not have given up a home run to Christian Vasquez. It's hard to give up anything to Christian Vasquez. And then when the pitcher yeah. spot comes up, even if the Red Sox pinch hit, say, Jackie Bradley or Mitch Moreland, well, you have a lefty on the mound instead of Ryan Madsen. Now, I understand after the Dodgers got Ryan Madsen at the end of August, he pitched fairly well, at least in terms of getting a lot of strikeouts. He seemed to be over the back injury that tanked his numbers with the Nationals. So I don't really know what the Dodgers' internal metrics have had to say about Ryan Madsen. I can tell you that they're probably more negative now than they were a few weeks ago because Ryan Madsen did not have a week to remember. But I guess he was important to them in the NLCS. And again, as we say all the time, even if you make the wrong move, bring in the wrong pitcher, bringing in Ryan Madsen does not mean, well, now the Red Sox have three runs. It's not a three-run decision. (laughs) It's like a partial run decision, no matter what. And then, of course, we're not even talking about any of this if Kenley Jansen doesn't allow another home run. Kenley Jansen has allowed 15 home runs this season, which is so many runs. But the the runs Kenley Jansen allowed in games three and four... Solo homers that blew the saves in both cases. Those are the only runs he allowed in the playoffs. He's still the mm-hmm. best reliever on the team. Craig Kimbrell was terrible yeah. all month, and he didn't blow a single save. It's just what well, a yeah. He unreal. had bigger leads to protect. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, I, I, people were mad at Roberts for bringing in Madsen again. And I get it because, what, he had allowed seven out of seven inherited runners to score in the yeah. previous two appearances easy, or something. Easy pattern to pick up on. Yeah, but, right, that was how Roberts managed to get to this point. That was what happened in the NLCS, and Madsen was fine then. And, I mean, you can't make decisions based on two games. You can make decisions maybe based on how the pitcher is pitching in those games, potentially, if there's something really worrisome there. But I didn't see people saying, well, he shouldn't have brought Madsen in because, you know, Madsen was not throwing as hard or he didn't have his good stuff or he lost his command or something. They were just saying, well, he let all the runners score last time. So why would you bring in the guy who lets all the runners score? But <laughs> he doesn't always. He did those two times. <laughs> so I don't know. It's just it's so hard to get out of that mindset of like what we saw yesterday has all the bearing in the world on what we'll see today. And we just know that's not the case. And there's so many examples of that, even within a game or within a series. It's like everyone was saying, well, how could you take Rich Hill out? He was pitching so well. All you had to do was look at the other side of that game at Eduardo Rodriguez, who was pitching so well until suddenly he wasn't and he gave up a bunch of runs. And I mean, that's kind of the perfect counter to guy who is pitching well will continue to pitch well it's it just it's not like you know object in motion will remain in motion i mean i guess it's like that except there is an equal and opposite force it's the hitters and the hitters are good and they get better when they see the guy a few times so that's kind of my problem with it i, I don't know I, I think roberts probably 
got a, a little over managey at, at points there, maybe, and shouldn't have taken out Alexander so quickly. But as you're saying, no matter what move you make, I mean, you could go to the absolute worst person in the bullpen at that point, and you still would expect it to work out better than it did. Like at a certain point, the relievers just need to get some outs, and no one was getting outs at all in that game. Like you could have said that he should have brought Maeda in. He didn't use Maeda a whole lot in these playoffs, but Maeda didn't look good either when he came in and he gave up runs. And, you know, if every reliever gives up runs, including Kenley Jensen, like if you get the ball to Jensen with a lead in a save situation, I know it's a two inning save situation, but still he's done that in the past. And I don't know, what can you do? Like he's one of the best relievers in recent history. All you can really ask is that you get the ball from your starter to your setup man and your closer with a lead. And if everyone just keeps blowing it, it's kind of on the players more than the manager. Not a whole lot you can do when Kenley Jansen is giving up home runs and Joe Kelly is a shutdown reliever. Like, I don't know how you're (laughs) supposed to interpret that and and come to terms with that. Now, Mm -hmm. when you go to the ninth inning, it was a little... It was a little strange when Dylan Flora came in, which I get. Kelly Jansen would have been tired, and Flora faced Nunez and Holt, but then the Red Sox pinch at Rafael Devers, and it was uh, surprising that Dave Roberts didn't have a lefty to go to in that situation because he brought in Alex Wood three batters later to face Andrew Benintendi, and he faced mm-hmm. he lasted one batter before Kenta Maeda came in. So it's a, it was a little surprising that Alex Wood wasn't warmed up in time to get in for for that lefty. Granted, he was followed by Swihart and Betson, etc. And, and, you know, Alex Wood probably takes a little longer to get warm in the moment mm-hmm. than a regular reliever would. But that would be one case where maybe Dave Roberts wasn't managing enough to not have a lefty available. And that mm-hmm. it bit him by championship win probability added that Rafael Devers' single in the ninth inning turned out to be the biggest play of the series. Now, on the other hand, again, you can look at that sequence. Brock Holt hit a double and then Rafael Devers singled him in. Both of those hits were off Dylan Floro. I'm sorry, Dylan Floro, you had a pretty good turnaround this season, but you melted down at the wrong time. But it wasn't even that much of a meltdown because the Brock Holt double was just a grounder that he slapped down the line the other way, yeah, which no right. one would ever expect. And then Devers' a single, it was a pretty well-hit single, but it was a ground ball that would have been hit right into the shift if there weren't a runner on second base. So even the biggest hits of the game were not even necessarily impressive hits or just cases of the Red Sox being great and the Dodgers not having the gumption or the will or whatever you want to say. It's just, well, these are grand balls that found their way through and that kind of that kind of did it, which I guess it didn't kind of do it because then the Dodgers tried to score more runs against Craig Kimbrell in the bottom of the inning. But it's uh, there's a whole... I, I don't know how Craig Kimbrell is going to be remembered after this October and he's going into free agency uh, because he was part of the winning team. I would imagine that these memories are going to fade pretty quickly, but boy, Craig Kimbrell really tried to kill a lot of Red Sox fans this month. There's really no <laughs> other way around it. Maybe it's not a coincidence that Chris Sale was on the mound to finish Game 5. Yeah, I mean, the, the Red Sox, they just sailed through these playoffs with basically nothing or worse than nothing from their best outfielder and best overall player, Mookie Betts, their best infielder, Bogarts, their best reliever Craig Kimbrell and their best starter Chris Sale they they got like nothing out of those guys and it didn't matter because they got so much out of Steve Pearson Brock Holt and Joe Kelly and just all these guys who coming into the playoffs we weren't even really thinking about that much maybe we should have thought about them more but I mean if you had said the Red Sox are going to go 11 and 3 in the playoffs and just steamroll over the other best teams in baseball, you would have figured, well, they're going to have to get a lot out of Mookie Betts. They're going to have to get a lot out of Chris Sale. And they just didn't. They just got contributions from all of these strange places on the roster that you wouldn't have thought. I I think their bullpen for the playoffs had a 187 batting average allowed and a 2.71 ERA, both of which were the best of any team in baseball, unless you count the one game that the Cubs had. So, I mean, we were talking about the Red Sox, like the bullpen was their vulnerability. And I know that we said, well, you know, it's not that bad and it's probably comparable to some of the other teams in the playoffs, but you wouldn't have expected it to just be dominant like this. And I don't know how unusual this is, but I was looking at 
the correlations between championship win probability added for all, what, 240 players I think there were in this postseason. I looked at the correlation between that, how much win probability they added to their teams in the postseason, and their regular season win probability added, and also their war. And there was no correlation, zero correlation. It was like 0.02 with their WPA and negative 0.06 or something with their war. Like you look at the leaderboard for championship win probability added in this postseason, and it just looks like it's completely random. Like you just kind of took all the names and just threw them up and they landed wherever. It's like Betts and Yelich, like the probably two MVPs of their respective leagues are down at the bottom, and so is Manny Machado and Yasmani Grandal and Jeremy Jeffress, like all these guys who were fantastic. And then you look at the top of the leaderboard, and it's like Steve Pierce. And I mean, Steve <laughs> Pierce had a pretty good regular season, but it's just not the order you would expect. And I, I, I'm going to go look and see whether it's always that random or whether this was especially random, but it's October, so we know it's pretty random. Right. That would be fun. And now looking at last year, again, this is at the baseball gauge. The top five in championship probability added were George Springer, Jose Altuve, Charlie Morton, Justin Turner, and Alex Bregman. So at least there's some normalcy there. There's not a Steve Pierce up there, although Logan Forsyth was seventh. So, you know, weird things happen. Michael Taylor down at 13th, regardless. But yeah, one of the things that also struck me, it's easy to remember just the World Series because that is what happened most recently, and that's when everybody gets to focus on the same two teams. But this postseason, the Red Sox bullpen threw 63 innings and allowed 21 runs. As you already said, aside from the Cubs, the Red Sox had the lowest playoff bullpen ERA in baseball. That was supposed to be their big weakness. Okay, 21 runs in 63 innings for the Red Sox bullpen. The Dodgers bullpen allowed 20 runs. In 64.2 innings, Dodgers bullpen, just going by runs allowed, the Dodgers bullpen was better than the Red Sox bullpen, which was the best bullpen. The Dodgers bullpen was better than, very slightly, it was better than the Brewers bullpen. The Brewers were supposed to be all bullpen. That's all the Brewers have an outfield and a bullpen, and that's their team. They have 12 players, and that's everything. And the Dodgers bullpen was as good as anyone else's bullpen in the playoffs. But that's not how it's going to be remembered. It's going to be remembered for what happened in Game 4 of the World Series, which is not very fair at all, because, again, you can just remember what happened in Game 3 when the Dodgers' bullpen was really, really good. Mm -hmm. So it's just strange. You go into the playoffs and you think, the Yankees have a stuffed bullpen. They they allowed a run every other inning. The Astros had a good-looking bullpen. The Brewers had a good-looking bullpen. Now, the Brewers' bullpen was good, Jeremy Jeffers aside, but Red Sox and Dodgers, two best bullpens in the playoffs? What are you supposed yeah. to do with that? And I don't <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, you look, the Red Sox got to use David Price in relief and Rick Porcello in relief and Chris Sale in relief and, of course, Nathan Yovaldi in relief. The Dodgers mm-hmm. were using Alex Wood and Kitabaeta. When the Red Sox traded for Yovaldi during the year, and he was having a good season, Yeah, I remember at the time thinking, oh, this is interesting because they basically traded for a fifth starter. But they're already going to win the division. Like, why get a fifth starter? And it just, I guess my mind wasn't open to the fact that, oh, right, in the playoffs, <laughs> starters are relievers, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. That didn't occur to me enough. And it's going to be easier to remember next time. Sometimes good teams can trade for a fifth starter because a fifth starter can become your, your best reliever. Look at the Maeda example for the Dodgers the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, the, the Dodgers are going to be remembered, I think, as worse in the playoffs than they actually were. Although, in fairness, if you look at how the Dodgers hit in the playoffs, uh, it was it was much, much worse. <laughs> you probably have looked at these numbers, but what's funny to me is that by, like, OPS differential or whatever, the best team in the playoffs were the Houston Astros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, we can talk about Dave Roberts's pitching moves all we want, but... The Dodgers had a 550 OPS in this series, and it's not like the Red Sox set the world on fire with their hitting, but the Dodgers batted 180, 249, 302, and the Red Sox obviously made whatever damage they did do, not trying to reference their hashtag, but it's hard not to. They made it count because they had, like, what, a... 1347 OPS or something with two outs and (laughs) and runners in scoring position, which is ridiculous. But I don't know. Even if you want to criticize Roberts for not making the optimal move, which maybe it's fair from time to time, but 
you just you needed the Dodgers to hit at some point, and they just weren't hitting, which is a credit to the Red Sox, obviously, as well. And the Dodgers are a really good hitting team that just didn't happen to hit all that well in this series or in this postseason. So I don't know what to do with that. It, it's funny. I, I wonder, you mentioned that like maybe Alex Wood wasn't ready, wasn't warmed up. I'm curious about how much that affects a pitcher. Like, what if you just brought him in anyway? What if you just said, <laughs> eh, you know, you'll get your warm-up pitches when you come out to the mound and uh, you'll be fine. I mean, there's probably like a, an injury risk there to not warming up. But in terms of effectiveness, I wonder what it actually is. Like, I'd like to see some guinea pigs who just volunteered to come out cold and just pitch to hitters without actually warming up because – One of the quantitative directors I talked to for my second guessing piece, he said that there's a real cost to warming up pitchers and then not using them, which makes me think, I mean, we all say that, but I I would assume that they have actually made some effort to quantify that and figure out what the stress is and what it does the next day if you warmed up and didn't get to come into the game or something. So I would guess that like... I mean, we have no data on that. We don't know how many times pitchers warmed up but didn't come in. We don't have a clue. I would think that teams know that. They probably know, like, what's the average time it takes for each guy to warm up and, you know, how much does it affect people if they come in when they're not warmed up. I'd I'd love to know all of that, but I don't. Yeah, uh, that's that's team-protected information. We have absolutely nothing. Uh, So there are two things. First of all, the people always tell you to warm up and stretch before you go to the the weight room of the gym. I'll tell you what, I don't I don't stretch at all when I go lift, and I'm fine. Nothing's ever gone wrong. On the other hand, yeah. Ryan Madsen said, what was it, game one, game two? I think it was game one. When Ryan Madsen came in and had his first bad experience of the World Series, that he wasn't quite ready to come into the game yet when he did come in because I think because it was so cold and blustery, he just didn't mm-hmm. feel like he was warm yet, and he immediately uncorked a wild pitch and walked a batter or two and and there was that so at least based on some anecdotal evidence ryan madsen wasn't all the way there but i mean you're right you do get to go in you get your eight i don't know if it's still eight warm-up pitches or if it's a matter of time now i forgot what the if there was a rule change it's been discussed but you do still get to warm up and you know alex wood at think of it in video game terms if alex wood is at like 70 percent warm Versus Dylan mm-hmm. Floro against Rafael Devers at 100% warm. Maybe you still get with the lefty, but I don't know. At the end of the day, you're right. The, the Dodgers in the playoffs had an OBP of 299, and their slugging mm-hmm. was 344. You're, you're not going to win a World Series by doing that. And you can look at the team, and of course, Manny Machado wasn't very good uh, for the Dodgers, <laughs> especially in the World Series. But I think it's easier looking at how the Dodgers finished. Like, Justin Turner was fine in the playoffs, all things considered considering the competition he was going up against but like for the second playoffs in a row Cody Bellinger was terrible and Jock Peterson was not really that good Yasmani Grandal was a nightmare at the plate there are these these individual players and I think Bellinger in particular but also Peterson you look at the way Joe Kelly pitched him in game five you just look at these guys and maybe I'm making too much but you think it seems like they really do have like big holes in their swing for like above average hitters it seems like Mm. something good hard fastballs can exploit I don't know what to make of that, but with Bellinger, like the evidence is pretty compelling. And like Peterson having trouble catching up with high heat, like Joe Kelly just mm-hmm. threw him seven straight inside fastballs and Peterson didn't have a prayer. It was like for a seven pitch at bat, it was non-competitive. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to make of it. It's really easy to overreact. The Dodgers are going to have a chance now to move on from Yasmani Grandal if they choose to. They don't have to keep Jock Peterson around if they don't want to. Peterson wound up in the playoffs with one walk and... 13 strikeouts but you know we're we're down to about 10 or 11 minutes left that you get to do on this podcast before you have to move on to talk about all the same stuff in another podcast <laughs> so i guess we should talk about some sort of overarching like uh the, se- the season's over david price redeemed himself and clayton kershaw mm-hmm. finished as a loser again yep. i don't know you any do you have anything to say about either one of those guys well, I'm I'm happy for Price. I I mean, he was impressive. It's funny just how completely three starts and and a relief appearance. I mean, he's you know made over 320 appearances in his major league career and it's like three or four of them now have just completely changed the perception of him and <laughs> 
You know, I I always hoped that he had this in him and thought he did because he has at times. He has come up big at various moments and just hasn't been consistent at it. And so I am glad that he did. I think it's it's nice and I think it's sad that Kershaw didn't. I mean, at this point, you know, I I don't think you can defend Kershaw just by using the old, I think, legitimate excuses that we used to about short rest and bullpen support and all that because those don't really apply anymore. Now, it's just he's not the same pitcher anymore. And I don't know whether he will be again, whether he will figure out how to succeed. I mean, he did well down the stretch, and so it's not like he can't do well when he is throwing at this speed so I don't know whether it just didn't work against good teams or whether he just didn't have the stuff didn't have the speed differential didn't have the movement whatever it was I mean you know to give up four runs against maybe the best offense in baseball in seven innings is not disastrous it's not embarrassing like he gave up home runs to jd martinez and mookie betts who are two of the very best hitters in baseball and you know i mean it's it's not like uh it's not one of his worst showings but i think in contrast to price who was very much redeeming himself it, it seemed like kershaw almost had or was at the point of getting past this and then two lousy world series starts and we're right back there, and, and it's not unfair because at this point he has almost a two-run gap between his postseason ERA and his regular season ERA, and that is not all bequeathed runners who scored. All right, Kershaw is the new price. Who was the new Kershaw? It just goes either way. Mm-hmm. We had we had talked earlier this month about how much it would take for David Price to reverse the narrative. And I think we had concluded then, like, it would actually take quite a lot. And I don't know, maybe he did it. (laughs) Of course, if he comes Mm -hmm. back and pitches and has a bad start next October in his first game, people will bring it up again. But I don't know. When you pitch, when you start and start well in the decisive game of the World Series, that probably does it. That's one of those mm-hmm. icon, and of course, there's how he pitched in in the ALCS yeah, as well. Two starts before that, yeah, yeah. I haven't read the entire article yet, but Jeff Passan has written about how <laughs> it's another pitch tipping comment. I'm going to bring it up, but <laughs> no. they say that uh, in early in the ALCS and against the ALDS, David Price was tipping his changeup, and that's the thing that he figured out in a side session. So <laughs> who knows? I really don't know, but I mean, that's what they're saying. So anyway, David mm-hmm. Price came out. Now, David Price presumably not going to opt out of his contract, but here we are talking about Clayton Kershaw. He's got, what, two years and 65 or something million dollars left on his contract. He has the option to opt out. He has three days to decide, which is not a lot of time. You could say, sure, you should be thinking about this all season long, but no player wants to think about that contract stuff during the year. Kershaw, clearly a diminished version of himself, but still very good. Again, he finished with a 273. ERA with a strikeout per inning, not many walks. Playoffs, he allowed too many home runs. His September wasn't sparkling, but I don't know. If It seems like maybe what's inevitable here is maybe the Dodgers tack on like a third year or whatever to what's existing, but this is going to be an interesting test, and I don't know what the right or wrong answer is here, but it's going to be an interesting test of the Dodgers front office, Andrew Friedman, Farhan Zaidi front office, to determine exactly how razy do we want to be with like one of the biggest budgets in baseball? Because it's easy to look at Kershaw and think this is a depreciating asset if you want to be super cold about it. <laughs> Kershaw is clearly not what he was. And given pitcher trajectories, it's very unlikely he gets back to what he was. On the other hand, he was quite good this season. He looked like a number one despite the injuries. But, you know, if you are if you're the Dodgers executives, you can think, I don't really want to, I don't feel comfortable giving this guy $35 million a year for like the next several years, but mm-hmm. a lot of people would say Clayton Kershaw is the Dodgers and mm-hmm. he's such an icon. How could you ever allow him to get away? And I say it's going to be a test. I don't know what the right answer is because I don't know how to value those, I don't know, soft factors, if you will. But it seems like it's not the Friedman move, but at the same time, mm-hmm. it is genuinely impossible to picture Clayton Kershaw pitching somewhere else. And I don't think that I want to picture Clayton Kershaw pitching somewhere else. So maybe if you were a Friedman, you just suck it up and say, well, hopefully we are always getting cheaper reinforcements from the farm system because maybe we're going to end up overpaying this legend. Yeah, and bigger, bigger picture about 
these two teams or the Red Sox. Uh, we were talking about it at the Ringer, some of the writers and editors, like what's the takeaway from this World Series or from the Red Sox win? Like lately we've had, you know, well, the Astros win, it's tanking, it's the Cubs win, it's tanking, there's a new way to win, this is how you do it. If the Brewers had won, we would have said, oh, it's bullpenning and it's not tanking and that's how you win. And there's just, for the Red Sox and Dodgers, I mean, they won kind of the way that they've been winning for a while and that lots of teams have been winning since the beginning of baseball, more or less, right? I mean, they spent a lot of money and they developed some prospects and they hung on to their prospects and they had some bad contracts that they were able to eat because they spend money and they found some guys and reclamation projects. I, you know, it's just like they kind of just did everything. They got talent internationally. They got talent through the draft. It, there isn't really a, they didn't find a shortcut, I don't think. They just kind of, win the way that big market powerhouse teams win and and presumably will keep winning. Does either of these teams strike you as a risk to falter soon? Is is one of them more than the other less likely to be back here next year or two years from now? Eh, I mean, here's so the thing that is always going to be in the Red Sox way is that they share a division with the Yankees and the Dodgers don't have that. There, there are yeah. decent teams in the NL West, of course, and you could argue that the Dodgers are worse than the Red Sox this season, but the Red Sox will at least be pushed by the Yankees who are not going away to say nothing of the Rays. And then the Dodgers are presumably going to be favorites with whatever roster they emerge from the offseason with next year. Remember, they get Corey Seager back, and Corey Seager is great. So the Red Sox the Red Sox are going to have to figure some things out. Craig Kimball is going to be a free agent. Isn't Joe Kelly going to be a free agent? There are various free agents on the Red Sox. World Series MVP Steve Pierce is going to be a free agent, so I don't know <laughs> what they're going to do. But, I mean, as long as you have bets, Bradley, Benintendi, Sale, Price, etc., the Red Sox are going to be okay. I don't know what they're going to do about Chris Sale and his durability, making sure he can hold up through October, but I don't know. On the other hand, he did look pretty good striking out the side to end the World Series Mm -hmm. this season. Don't think either team is going to disappear next year. I have been wrong about those things, and I guess if you want to really take maybe the strongest opinion you can take about like what's the takeaway message from the champion is, oh, the Red Sox paid the money to get J.D. Martinez, and while teams were avoiding free agents or whatever, then the Red Sox just put their money where their mouth was, and they they spent the money, and they were rewarded for it, which is Mm -hmm. great, fine, whatever. I don't think it's super controversial to spend on one of the five best hitters in baseball (laughs) and give him a modified contract because of some sort of foot problem, but Dave Dombrowski deserved to win one of these things for how aggressive he's been all the time mm-hmm. like you the Red Sox have made some aggressive moves and in, in trading for Chris Sale and signing JD Martinez and and acquiring Craig Kimbrell like Dave Dombrowski has a way that he works and yep. it sacrifices a lot of the, the whole idea behind Dave Dombrowski's behavior is the future but we're trying to win right now and if we mm-hmm. win right now it'll justify everything and this is the first time he's won in a long time since he was with the what Marlins right yep mm-hmm. I didn't look this up but, yeah that's right yeah so it's been two decades for Dave Dombrowski, but now he could probably put his, like, the Tigers ghosts might not be haunting him anymore. He's got his World Series, and, you know, the sale trade looks built great. Built a good bullpen somehow, even, built even a good though bullpen. we didn't think he did. <laughs> yeah. A month ago, we thought the conversation about both these teams, the Red Sox and the Dodgers, they yeah, didn't do enough to address their for, bullpen. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Here we are. What do you do? <laughs> it's true for one of them, I guess, but, so, yeah. I, and, like, the Red Sox, I, I don't know how to place this in context with their previous recent titles because it's like four in 15 years i guess you can call them like the team of the century so far the team of the millennium if you want to and it's just these are such different teams like we're talking about three different managers three different general managers no real overlapping players for all of these World Series. I mean, even Dustin Pedroia, he wasn't around for the 4 one, and he didn't play in this series. So it's kind of like the titles aren't concentrated enough to call them a dynasty exactly, but there are enough of them in a short span of time that it's also not novel when they win one so everyone's like oh the Red Sox again which is <laughs> not something you could have envisioned anyone saying 15 years ago but now it's just old hat all of a sudden but it is I guess causing a reappraisal of the 2018 team which 
I, prior to the playoffs, had not thought of really as like an all-time great team because the underlying numbers just didn't really suggest that, that they were or that there was a big gap between them and the Yankees or the Astros or the Dodgers or there were cases you could make that all those other teams were better than they were. And, you know, 14 playoff games probably shouldn't change your opinion that much, even though it's against other really, really good teams whom they mostly dominated. So in terms of results, I mean, you know, 108 regular season wins plus 11 in the playoffs just rolled right over some really excellent teams. You can't really find any fault at all with the actual results. So at this point with the season over, maybe there's just no point in, you know, trying to poke holes and say, well, their base runs record, or, you know, it's just like <laughs> at this point, why even go in that direction? And, you know, all this like incredible hitting with two outs and runners in scoring position. I don't know if that's a skill. Doesn't seem like it's a repeatable thing. Hasn't been for most teams in the past, but they did it. They did it during the year and they did it during the playoffs and it made them good. So it's uh it's, it's kind of like how we were evaluating the Dodgers versus the Red Sox coming into this series and trying to decide which one was really the favorite or was one really a lot better. And it looked like the Red Sox were a lot better, but again, it's five games. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't check the final numbers, but I'm pretty sure the Red Sox scored during the playoffs 45 runs with two outs, and they allowed a total of 51 runs. So it's pretty good. <laughs> I think you look at this team and yeah, by if you look at the underlying numbers, the, the run differential, the base runs, the Red Sox came into the playoffs as not clearly the best team in baseball, but not only did they win the most games, but I give them a lot of credit for the fact that they eliminated the other three best teams in baseball in order, and they did it all while losing only three times. So that's enough for me to just give in and say, yep, the Red Sox were the best. They were the best this year. They showed it. They were great all season, and then they were great in the playoffs. That's good enough for me. Don't have a huge overarching takeaway, except that the Red Sox were very good. And in conclusion to this podcast, because I know you have to go, the Mets hired an agent to be their general manager. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll have to talk about that later in the week and maybe some stray other thoughts on Red Sox and Dodgers and World Series. But uh, yeah, it was it was eventful. Could have been more eventful, but there was a lot to talk about and it's it's always kind of depressing for me. I say this every year, but going to MLB trade rumors or whatever, like the day after the World Series ends and seeing this extremely insignificant news like leading the site. <laughs> I mean, yeah, everyone's wondering about Machado and Harper. And of course, we will talk about their free agencies, but there's all this like little so small stuff where we go from like every play deciding the championship to these moves that will make barely any impact at all and we're suddenly supposed to be just as interested in this stuff that won't have any effect on anyone for several months and close <laughs> to a year so it's it's a tough transition but it was tougher like the last couple of years when we were coming off the the highs of those world series and this one i feel like i'm in off-season mode a little bit more i just had a waking nightmare what if we had been doing one of our patreon supported podcasts during game yeah. three <laughs> my wife asked me what would we have done if we had been streaming that and i i i said i mean we take our responsibility seriously we probably just <laughs> would have been out there for seven hours i don't know if maybe you would have left in protest or something but i, I probably would have just been sitting there silently <laughs> wow fulfilling my application i think i just gave myself anxiety for something that didn't happen Anyway, <laughs> all right. we'll, we'll talk to you all later. Okay. All right, that will do it for today and for this season. Of course, we're not going anywhere over the winter, but this did mark the conclusion of our seventh season doing this podcast. We started it in the summer of 2012, so not seven full seasons, but parts of seven seasons, which is pretty incredible. I never expected that it would still be going after this long. It has not always been easy to keep it going through job changes and co-host changes and life changes, but your support and continued participation make it possible and rewarding, and we hope that we can continue to count on them in the future. So thank you for spending this season with us, and we hope that you will spend your off-season with us. I really wish I could just go stare out the window 
window and wait until spring, but I have imminent book deadlines, but I will try to stick to the podcast schedule nonetheless. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, and the following five listeners have already done so. Andrew Belize, Dominic Theophan, Nick Graham, Doug Graham, Michael Workman, thanks to all of you. You can also rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. If you enjoyed listening to us this season, please let us and other potential listeners know on there. You can also get through the winter by joining our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. It's always active in there and feels a little bit like baseball season. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will be back to talk to you soon. Eight long years.